you know, as I started looking around for schools for our little girl, that what they were feeding them, no one was talking about the environment. They were all expected to kind of live in this little box. Nobody was teaching any kind of self-efficacy. And I just said to Jim one night, I just said, you know, and it was, actually it was November of 05. So I just said to him, I said, you know, I can't put our baby in any of these schools. Maybe we homeschool her. But she was already very much sort of an introvert. We just thought it was gonna be too isolated. So I said, well, why don't I just get a couple of families together because there are, there are a cluster of them at the preschool and we'll just start a little homeschool kind of thing. We were gonna do it in this area, in our guest house. So all of a sudden we had a campus, we had kids, we had a school. And we were building that jet while we were flying Mach 10. That's Susie Amos Cameron, and this is The Proof Podcast. Plant friends, I am super delighted to be back with you today for another episode of The Plant Proof Podcast. Welcome back for regular listeners and for first-time listeners. My name is Simon Hill and I'm the creator of plantproof.com and the host of the Plant Proof Podcast. Folks, there have been so many private messages and social media sharing with kind comments and feedback about the podcast. I'm really lost for words, but I need to thank you. The show has grown so fast and is growing hugely each week, reaching new people from all over the world. And I'm just so excited and grateful. I have an audience who appreciates this information. I didn't set out to build the best podcast in the world or to make money from this thing. I just wanted to connect with amazing minds to learn more myself and be able to bring people from around the world at home, you, into the conversations so that it's like that you're there with me. So thanks for coming on this journey. We are doing this together, learning together, creating positive change together online and in our local communities. This week, I've been in New York. I did a walking tour with John Joseph, who's an iconic vegan and a real character. I've wanted to do this tour for a while now. We also recorded a podcast, so in a few weeks' time, when that's published, you'll be able to hear about his wild, wild story and more about the walking tour. I've also been back to Organic Grills to eat, my favorite place to eat in Manhattan. And Vlad, the owner, he's a a really great fella and the food is just perfect. I I like simple home-cooked style plant-based food, so I usually usually get him to make me one of the bowls there. And, And like most places... Little tip for you guys, I do ask them to take it easy on the oil. If you've been traveling for two or three weeks and you don't usually have a lot of oil at home, I I like to ask the restaurants just to take it easy or cook without it and you feel a lot better for it. Instead, I try and get my fats from nuts, seeds and avocados, etc. So this week's episode, wow. You You guys know Terminator, Titanic, Avatar? I was invited to James and Susie Cameron's place in Malibu, California to catch up with Susie and document her story, their transition to a plant-based diet, the inspiration behind the plant-based school they set up, and a whole heap more. What was so cool was how down-to-earth 
everyone at the Cameron's house was. Susie and her staff were just so genuine. And you've got to remember, James Cameron's movies are some of the biggest ever in terms of sales. These guys could be excused for kicking up their feet on the white sands of a resort in Greece or living on a yacht, but instead they're working their butt off with a number of initiatives to make this world a better place. I just think it's an amazing example of a family who's been extraordinarily successful but is so grounded and so grateful to have an opportunity to help lead positive change. This is a really fascinating episode. We delve into climate change and how real it actually is, what we can all do to help improve the planet's health and much more. You are going to absolutely love this one. After you listen, if you're inspired, please share a message on social media and tag Susie Amos Cameron and myself and I'll share it at my end too. Here we go. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com 
forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Susie Cameron, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. What an amazing place you live in here. Do you want to um, just explain quickly to to the listeners where we are, where we're sort of positioned, not specifically, but geographically, this general area that we're in sort of outside of Los Angeles and how long you've been here? Yeah, definitely. So um, we are at our home in Malibu and Jim lived here for probably six to seven years before I moved in. And I've been here for 21 years and it is, it's, it's a little piece of paradise oasis. It's, it's surrounded by state park. So we don't have a lot of neighbors and we have all kinds of wildlife that comes through. We see coyotes, we see mountain lions, we see lots of rattlesnakes, um, (laughs) bunnies, you know, that sort of thing. But it's, it's a really beautiful and sequestered place to live. It's peaceful and it's a great, it's a great place to be able to come to at the end of the day in our hectic world. Which we're going to get into. Yeah. But the, the rattlesnakes, they're, they're not poisonous, are they? Of course they are. Oh, they are poisonous. Oh, yeah, okay, definitely. Well, so I thought Australia had most of the poisonous snakes, but so the rattlesnakes, no, 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 no. so if you see a rattlesnake, you're, you're running. You know, people have this idea about rattlesnakes that they're really aggressive and that they're going to chase you and do all those kinds of things. I grew, actually grew up in Oklahoma and we have a farm that has a rattlesnake den. So I grew up around them and we've had people come and photograph the den. The interesting thing is, is that you can put a piece, not that we've done this, but you can put a piece of dynamite in a rattlesnake den and they will always come back and recreate it. Wow. Yeah, you can't ever really get rid of it. But the thing is, is that they're more scared of us than you. And they actually have something to warn you, which is their rattle. And it's it's comes off of a, a sensing heat. Okay. So they will warn you and they're not aggressive and they actually move really slowly. So you haven't heard of kids or anyone around this area getting bitten by them? You know, you rarely, it's mostly dogs that get bitten by them yeah. kind of thing because they, they don't know what they are. We do rattlesnake training with our dogs, which is highly effective. And I know a lot of people around here do that because they just think it's a toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Malibu itself, the, the beach, do you get down to the beach much? You know, I drive past it all the time, but I don't go down there. My oldest son is a, is a big, big surfer. So he's down there. He goes up to County Line and, you know, the big surf spots here in over at the colony too. But where we do spend time more at the beach is we have a ranch that's up north of Santa Barbara. Okay. And so, in fact, I spent the last five days up there. Which is what, a couple hours north? It's, mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I've driven through there once. I did that drive up to to San Fran. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, Hollister's very, very special. Down in Malibu, I remember I was here in March and I went to, I had, I, I caught up with Jermaine Jones, who I think you know, Sarah Jones' husband. Yes, yes. And their kids go to the Muse, which we're That's no right. doubt going to jump into and explore what the Muse School is all about that you started. But I had lunch at Sun Life Organics. Okay. It was a great spot. Have you been down there? I have, yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. And my kids love to go down there to get all kinds of things. So, yeah. Now- of course, I'm incredibly excited to to jump in and explore 
sustainability and, and everything that you're doing. You're so passionate about the environment. And you mentioned Jim, your husband, who all of the listeners would, would know who he is, one of the greatest filmmakers in the world, having done what, Titanic Terminator, Avatar, <laughs> just to name a few. Um, what you guys are doing, it's incredible. And, and particularly from my set, I can just see how passionate you are. You've done so much. I don't know how you guys fit it <laughs> into your schedules, which I want to try and understand today. But before we we jump into these bigger picture things and discuss those, I'd love to know a little bit more about where you grew up, what life was like for you as a kid. Were you part of a, a typical American family? Most definitely. So I grew up in Oklahoma City and we we do have a farm that's about an hour and a half south of Oklahoma City in the Arbuckle Mountains. So I really grew up in the outdoors. I've got five brothers and sisters. And, you know, my mom was there raising us without, you know, any kind of accoutrement of, you know, house. there was a housekeeper, but she kind of came in occasionally. Mom did all the laundry. She did all the cooking. She was one of those moms that made bread every day. And, you know, all the other kids were getting those really nice little cheese squares wrapped in cellophane and, you know, those cookies that have, that are brown on the outside and have the white icing on the middle, <laughs> those kinds of things in their lunches. And we had homemade bread, you know, sandwiches and homemade cookies, you know, sort of wrapped. So you were the healthy cow. kids? We were, we were. And I know that the, you know, the bigger thing too was raising six kids during that time. It was, it was a lot about penny pinching as well. And at one point, my, my dad, he took out a loan to send us to private school and all the kids that we were going to school with were driving around in BMWs and Peugeots and fancy cars. And we had a, a 1967 Pontiac executive that we handed down from kid to kid to kid. (laughs) So it was an amazing way to grow up. And I'm really glad that I grew up there because my, I definitely have values Mm. of, you know, keeping my feet on the ground and And appreciation for money. And absolutely. And if I didn't keep my feet on the ground, I can assure you that my siblings would knock me back to the ground So when I went off to, when I was 17, I left Oklahoma. I had an opportunity to go live in Paris and to be a model. And it was just this direct shot. I was, had every intention of becoming a vet. I grew up riding horses. And when I was 15, I come from a long line of aviators. So my dad flew, my grandfather flew. I've got two brothers that fly. And when I was 15, my daddy asked me if I wanted to learn to fly. And I said, yeah, of course. So he taught me to fly and then I started lessons. And so I had this dream of becoming a flying vet. And I was going to fly all around, you know, the, the bordering states, Texas, Arkansas, Kansas, Louisiana, and take care of beautiful horses. This was my dream. And I was already... Going down that path, I had found a school and then I had this, you know, interesting experience that happened. I, all my girlfriends were writing English and I had this, and they had very fancy horses and I had a cutting horse, which is, you know, cutting and rounding up cattle and things like that. She was kind of a mutt of a horse, but a beautiful horse. 
And I wanted to learn to write English too. So I asked my dad to help me out. And he said, he said, I'll board that horse and I'll pay for the vet bills and I'll feed it, but I am not going to buy a little bitty saddle. (laughs) So I started babysitting for 50 cents an hour. You know, now nannies get like a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, How long did it take to get the saddle? Well, what ended up happening not too long after that, a friend of my aunt's had a modeling agency. So my sister and I, my older sister and I, she's four years older, but they used to call us the Amos twins. And she started booking us in doing fashion shows, which was super fun. But I could make more money in two weeks than I could have probably in four years of babysitting. So I was able to buy that saddle very quickly. And during around the same time, my brother, my baby brother started getting interested in photography. So he had his own dark room and, and he decided to use me as a subject. The proper photography. Yeah. Wow. So he was taking pictures of me. So this woman who had the agency actually sent those pictures to Eileen Ford in New York. And the next thing I knew, you know, Eileen had called and she wanted to meet me. So my mom took me up there and I seriously was just thought, oh, cool. I can go to New York. You know, I hadn't traveled a lot. Did you know what you were sort of getting into? How big of an opportunity that was? Absolutely not. I mean, I thought it was cool. I knew who Eileen Ford was, but I had no idea and I didn't have any expectations because I was going to be a flying vet, you see. So we got up there and we had plans to meet Eileen and Wilhelmina and Elite. And when we were in Eileen's office, she said to me, and I was painfully shy. I don't think I said two words, but she asked me to step outside so she could talk to my mom. What she asked my mom was, if we stay, could stay in New York an extra four days and not go see Wilhelmina and not go see Elite that she'd like to take me on the Merv Griffin show and introduce me as the face of the eighties. Wow. So my whole, my whole world just did a flip flop. I was on with Jerry Hall and Shelly Winters. And I seriously probably said two words the whole time. He was asking me lots of questions, but I shook my, I nodded and shook my head (laughs) because I was so, so shy. But from that moment on, everything, everything switched. And I ended up, this was the, my junior year of high school. And I ended up going back over the summertime and meeting an agent from Paris who said, come to Paris, baby. <laughs> so, you know, my mom and dad took me to Paris. We stopped along the way in Chicago to get mom and me a passport. Daddy had his already. And we went over there and they stayed with me for two weeks, made sure I was safe and had roommates and an apartment. And were there any other girls your age from America that were joining you on this sort of new adventure? Yes. There, so the, I, there was another American girl that was my roommate and then a Danish girl. And was it pretty wild? Like what were the like parties and what was the social scene like back then as a young model coming up in that sort of Paris yeah. environment, the hub? It was, and, you know, I was kind of thrown into it, but I really landed in a very, very safe place. And I heard horror stories later on of, there were two main agents there, and I just happened to get put with the one that really took care of his girls. 
And, you know, we weren't, we would maybe get a half a glass of champagne once a month. We would definitely go out dancing and, and that sort of thing, but they were always making sure we were accounted for. And, but I was 17 years old and I had my cowboy boots and my jeans and my backpack and my passport. And within two weeks I was going, I was traveling to Italy and to London. Grow up fast. Unbelievable. And it was amazing. I went to Morocco and I went to Israel and I went to you know, other Tunisia and to South Africa. And I mean, it was what an incredible experience. Yes. So when it came time for me to, and I was supposed to stay there for three months during the summertime. And I called my parents in August and I asked them if I could stay for the first semester of my senior year and study correspondence. And I promised I would go back and graduate from high school, but I was working every day. So by the time Christmas rolled around, I was financially independent, actually even before that, and had opened a Swiss bank account and was I starting to, to save my money. And I ended up spending three and a half years in Paris. I did come back for that last semester and graduated from high school, but I stayed for three and a half years. And then when I was 21, I moved to New York and I bought my own apartment with my very own money. And I was still modeling for a while. And then I met a woman named Davian Littlefield, who she was working in the theatrical theatrical department of the agency. And she kept telling me I should try acting. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go home and become a vet. <laughs> and she talked me into going on an audition. And one of the first auditions I went on was for Steven Spielberg. And I had no idea what I was doing. And he <laughs> said that to me. He said, you don't really know anything about this, do you? And I said, well, no, not really. And he said, but I, he said, I don't think you're right for this part, but I think, you know, I want to send you over to talk to my protege, Kevin Reynolds, That's and cool. he's directing a movie called. So he Fandango. saw something. He, he, he saw something there he did. that he could work with. Yep. Yeah. So my whole life has been I want to be really transparent about this. It's, it's been charmed. It really has. And I've, you know, I've had these opportunities and I've taken them, which is what I love to tell young people. Jumped take, into it. Take the opportunities. You may decide in a month that you don't want it, but at least take them. But realize when you take them, you will have to work your butt off to stay. And you might get, you know, your toe in a door. But certainly, I mean, I, I became a professional when I was 17 years old and then certainly acting. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go into acting and be dressed up in tight clothes and pranced around like a model. I wanted to be taken seriously. Mm. So I took two years and studied with a woman from the actor studio. So every time I've had these kinds of opportunities present themselves, I have worked really hard. And you mentioned something earlier about you know, Jim's and, and my platform, as it were, and we take it very seriously. And we are fully aware that we could be taking pictures of our toes in our favorite restaurants and posting them. But we want to use our platform to do something that will make a difference in the world. And I think you're doing exactly that. Yeah. If we just pause for one second before we get keep going with your story and yeah. where where the acting took you 
we hear a lot about models these days and the pressures they're under and particularly women and, and women having to sort of ha- fit that stereotypical, very thin, you know, certain diets. Was there, was there pressure on your diet and how much you weighed back in those days? What one thing we haven't touched on, I guess, as, as a teenager and, and when you had moved out to, to Paris by yourself, what was your diet like? What types of foods were you eating back then? And had you ever sort of stopped and thought about what the effect of your diet had on your body or the planet at that stage? I wasn't thinking about the planet. In fact, that really didn't come to my, I thought about the planet a lot in my adult life, but making that connection between animal agriculture and the environment, which we can talk about later, didn't happen until six and a half years ago. But certainly with being a model, I, I, I should probably back up because being in Oklahoma, we were, mom was making casseroles and we certainly grew some vegetables in the summertime down at the farm. And I remember digging up potatoes and, and picking corn and peaches and things like that. But I didn't really start paying attention completely until I was about 12. And I found green beans when I was 12 years old. And there are massive pressures on young girls and women, you know, back then and still today. And I didn't escape that. I certainly didn't escape that at all. So it was, um, the, it was a situation. I was, I was a little bit of a chunky kid. You know, I look back at pictures and I was like, oh, no, no, I was just like a healthy little kid. You know what I mean? But it's other kids are brutal and the things that they say to mm-hmm. people and, and brutally honest. <laughs> yeah. And mean. Yeah. So I, I found green beans and I, I found salad and, you know, and I, I felt better when I was eating those things, certainly. And then when I went to Paris our agent was incredibly instrumental in helping us. And, you know, there were pressures to that. I know that a lot of the other models succumbed to, which was, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking a lot of coffee and really to just suppress the appetite. Exactly. Yeah. And just not eating. Well, he really, he really helped us understand, you know, the best way to eat to, you know, I look back on it now and, and, there's a better way to eat for sure, but really the best way to eat, to stay healthy and have energy and to still fit in the clothes and, you know, all of that sort of thing. So compared to the others, his, his message was relatively responsible. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause I know that a lot of girls were doing drugs and things like that. Now, what I know is happening now in the modeling world, only because I took my niece a couple of years ago to make the rounds in New York is that they really protect these young girls now. They find trainers for them. They put them together with nutritionists. And frankly, there are girls that, you know, there are pressures on designers and companies to not support this, you know, super skinny model anymore. So it's it's become healthier in on that level. Yeah, which is great because I guess they've seen the the last couple of decades before that and and realize that they need to 
to step in and, as you said, protect these young girls a little bit more as they're coming through when they're at such a young age. Mm -hmm. They're very, you know, very uh, impressionable. Yeah, absolutely. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so you started acting and that was... 21, 22 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Said, I was right? 21 years yeah. old when I did Fandango. Where, and and Spielberg saw you, mm-hmm. obviously saw something in you. Where did your where did you take acting from there? So he sent me over to meet with Kevin Reynolds and Kevin put me on tape. And the next thing I knew, I was cast in a film called Fandango with Kevin Costner and Sam Robards. Sam ended up becoming my first husband and the, there you go. the daddy of my firstborn. And we're all really close now, which is really, really great. It's a one big happy family. He's remarried and has got a couple of kids and oh, cool. we all hang out together. So 
it was after that that I started, I got a couple of offers to do films and some TV shows where, you know, one of them was to wear a leotard and kind of be doing aerobics. And, you know, the other one was, you know, I was in, they wanted me in like this tight dress. And I just started thinking that I really, if I was going to get into acting, I wanted to take it seriously and I wanted to be taken seriously. So I did start studying and studied very intensely for two years with this woman from the actor's studio. And I quit modeling, just cold turkey. I kept getting, you know, offers to, for different things, but I just thought, you know what? Was it more stimulating or what was it like? It was the challenge of trying something new or why did you want to move from modeling to acting? I just, I just love to keep moving and growing. And I mean, I, I'm a learning junkie. You can see my office is full of books, as you can tell. Yeah, books and um, whiteboards. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of the way I roll and, you know, it's, it's, with everything. When I, you know, studied ballet, when I started riding horses, I didn't want to just ride around in a Western saddle. I wanted to learn how Mm. to jump horses and show and do that kind of thing. So I think it's, it's been through my whole life of wanting to, wanting to grow and wanting to keep learning. And every single day I'm, I'm just open to, and just curious, just curious. What was it like? You know, like, can you remember the first time where you sort of jumped on scene in front of all these cameras, full production crew? Was it daunting? Were you like nervous about remembering your lines? And, and what, like, take us through that if you can remember those first well, times. Fandango, I had one line. So, you know, yeah, when I, when I had to open my mouth and actually say something, I was like, oh. <laughs> but the cool thing was, is that it was kind of me and, all these guys. So it was Kevin Costner and Judd Nelson and Sam Robards and, you know, a couple of other other ones. And they were so supportive and so helpful. They knew that I hadn't done a film before. And so they were, and Kevin was just darling. And sort of coached you through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, when you're working on a film, I ended up doing 26-ish films. Wow. 26, 27. And when you're on a set, which I loved, I loved being on a set and doing, you know, creating characters and that sort of thing. But it becomes like a family and everybody's supporting everyone else. You get to a place of intimacy very, very quickly that you wouldn't normally in a day-to-day job, for instance. And I loved theater. I loved being on stage, too. I also quit acting cold turkey, too. When was that? Well, I had this meeting when I was 34 years old, I was actually doing a film called Last Stand at Saber River with Tom Selleck. And I knew that I wanted to get a job right away after that. And I just kept calling my manager every day. And I was like, I get me another job. I need another job. And I finished the film and I was in the Albuquerque airport and I got a call that on the white courtesy phone, which I don't even think the white courtesy phones exist anymore, but they used to have announcements over the, the loudspeaker, you know, and I heard Susie Amos pick up the white courtesy phone and I picked it up and she said, okay, when you get back to LA, you know, just drop your bags. You've got a meeting tonight at 7 PM with James Cameron. And I was like, 
and who's that again? <laughs> and she said, oh, well, he did the Terminators and he did uh, Aliens. And I was like, oh, I love Aliens. And, that was like, <laughs> and you know, and, and the Abyss. I had seen Aliens. It scared the crud out of me. But the Abyss I loved. And I hadn't even seen the Terminator movies. So I dropped myself off and I went to meet this guy, James Cameron. And I had this idea that he was... For some reason, I just had a whole another picture in my mind of, you know, somebody that was older with dark hair and, you know, kind of schlubby, I guess. I don't know what word to use. But I was sitting on the the floor with the uh, casting agent and we were looking through this big, beautiful book about Titanic. And she was telling me about this movie that they were going to be doing on the Titanic and this tall, willowy guy comes, you know, bouncing into the room and telling me that he was sorry that he was late, but they had been filming the opening scenes for Titanic where you pan across the bottom and the doll's face is there. And anyway, he had a ring around his face from his mask. <laughs> and typically a meeting like that would have taken 20 minutes. And an hour and 45 minutes later, he kind of said to me, well, I guess we should talk about the movie. And by the way, here's the script. And it was the fattest script I'd ever seen. I think it was like 150 pages or something. And he said, you're going to have to read this tonight because you're going to have to let me know tomorrow because you leave in 48 hours. So James wrote the script, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, he did. He writes all of his stuff. Yeah, he writes all of it. It's crazy. Anyway, I didn't, you know, people ask me all the time, was it love at first sight? It was like, no, but boy, was he a cool guy. So you were shocked. He wasn't what you thought. No. And we hardly talked about, well, we didn't talk about the movie at all until the last, you know, three and a half minutes. And we didn't talk about films. Does he remember remember that meeting? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a, you know, it was, it was a big moment for both of us. Was he intending on talking more about the movie or was from his end, was it more to introduce himself and make you sort of feel comfortable with working with him or? I just think we went down that road from, from the get-go, you know? I, I just think that because typically in a meeting like that, you walk in, say hello. There might be five minutes of chit-chat, but then it's like, all right, here's the deal. Here's the film, mm, you know? Straight to business. Exactly. And we talked about motorcycle riding. We talked about shooting guns. We talked mm. about flying airplanes and helicopters and scuba diving and, you know, and skydiving and all, all this of the cool stuff. Groovy cool <laughs> stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So it was um, you know, we both definitely thought I mean, I thought he was cool and he's told me that he thought I was cool, mm. but there wasn't that But it was different. You walked away thinking that was a different meeting. Yeah. Yeah, and and I didn't even read the script. <laughs> before I said I called my manager who was still actually Davian left the modeling agency and, and formed her own company. So she became my manager along with about eight other models. So she created this little group and I called her up and I said, is there any reason why I shouldn't do this? And she said, no, Suze, it'll be fun. It'll, you know, it's two and a half weeks and it ended up being about three, but two and a half weeks and it's an amazing cast and you'll be in Nova Scotia and no, go for it. Another incredible opportunity. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, you know, there I was in it. I don't think we, we were incredibly professional and I didn't tip my hand that I thought he was really cool until I was wrapped and he didn't tip his hand either. 
Now, there was a moment, probably about four or five days before we wrapped, and he was sitting in for Gloria Stewart, who was the old woman who played Old Rose. And she and I had become very, very, very dear friends. And we continued our friendship, even though she was 51 years older than me, until she died at 100. So I met her when she was 86. But she would say to me on the set, she was like, I don't know, Susie. I think if there was a producer, director around, you know, that was really interesting. I don't know, Susie, I might make a move if I were you. And I'm like, Gloria, first of all, I don't roll that way, you know, but she kept, she was the matchmaker. She probably could sort of foresee it, that she shed the intuition. She knew knew what was going on. She saw the sparks flying. (laughs) All kinds of people saw the sparks flying. But there was a moment when we were doing a scene where she starts talking about Jack's hands and how Jack had these hands of an artist, but they were roughened by work. Well, he was reading those lines offline, off camera rather. And we were reacting to it as the group. And there was a moment when I was like, oh my gosh, he has hands like that. <laughs> I don't think he was writing about his own hands, but I, that's what my, that's was my process. I was like, he has hands like that. And it was from that moment on, I was like, okay, I've got to keep my hands or my fa- eyes off of his hands. <laughs> and so Sparks were starting to fly, but we were in re- very, very professional. And it wasn't until the morning that we wrapped that he asked me out on a date. And that's where it all began. That's probably began. began. Yeah. Yeah. So how many years ago was that now? 22. 22 years ago. 22 and a half almost. Yeah. And, and from then you guys sort of have been together. I mean, you started seeing each other from that day. We did. Yeah. We did. And when, when we really decided that, you know, we were going to... It, was a clearly obvious that we were going to be together. I kind of said to him, look, I, I know what it's like to have a relationship in the business. And, you know, I had been, Sam and I had split up many years before that. He was an actor. And I said, one of us is going to have to quit working. And something tells me it's not going to be you. And, oh, by the way, I want to have a bunch of kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I quit. I quit cold turkey. And I missed being on the set, but I didn't miss, I think the part that I, that I really had a hard time with, um, within the business was going out to all of the events and playing that game because it's not who I am. And interestingly enough, I'm finding myself back in the public eye, but now I have a message. Real purpose. A real purpose. And all those years, everything from being in Oklahoma and dancing ballet to gymnastics to riding a horse to being a model and learning how to move in that way to being an actress and learning how to use my voice and speak in public and all of those things. I feel like all of those things have prepared me Definitely. for this moment. It's such a resume. Yeah. The decision to to leave acting and start a family. So how many kids did you, have you had? So we, I, we each brought one child to the marriage and then we've had three of our own together. So I turned into a completely, you know, I mean, I had had one child, 
But these next three children, it was a full-on science experiment. So I turned into that learning junkie again. I came very close to becoming a midwife during that time. But what ended up happening, how I, how I veered from that, and it, it really was, I, I learned everything about giving birth and read quite a few books actually written by midwives and had all, had all of them, all four of them without using any drugs and just realized how resilient the human body is and how much I wanted to spread the word around that there are ways to give birth naturally, that it's hard work. It's definitely hard work, but it's not a nightmare like people talk about. And I think that if you allow your body to do what it's meant to do without too many interventions, then it's going to take care of business. Now, obviously there are emergencies, which is, you know, they're definitely important to look at. But I, I, def, I turned it into, you know, research and how to be the best parent and how to, how to raise, because it had been, you know, quite a few years since I'd raised my first baby. And, you know, my sister has a master's in early childhood. So I was on the phone with her all the time. It's like, you know, what are the best parenting techniques and, you know, attachment yeah. parenting and food and, you know, all of those things. So, where where was food at? I guess for for the early years of their life. Well, it's it 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 definitely started with me going through you know my years, and then when I pregnant with my first, and when he was born, you all of and I know so many moms have gone through this too. You all of a sudden you just want to make sure whatever goes into that baby or is on that baby, you know, lotion, clothes, you know, carpeting, mm. whatever it is, you want to make sure it's the purest possible thing you can possibly find. So I got very interested in organic produce and, um, and foods, fruits and veggies for the, for the baby. And, you know, I just happened to be living between New York and LA. So I had a lot of access to that. And then, you know, when our, the oldest of our three that we had together, when it came time for her to start kindergarten, and I had, you know, I had taken all of those, those ideas of cleaning products and shampoos and body products and clothes, organic clothes and everything, you know, I just had really taken that to a whole nother level and you couldn't find any of any caustic cleaners in our home. But when it came time to, to start Muse, because Claire needed a school to go to, and we had watched our two older kids go through different educational systems, and I watched their spirits being squashed. I watched them having tummy aches and tears, and I hated school. I was a really good student, but I hated it. I was painfully shy. I went to school probably 95% of the time with a tummy ache because I was so just anxious and I hated it. <laughs> there was so much pressure and, and we were meant to be somebody, you know, fit into a box that, that very few people could actually fit into, you know, God bless those people that can fit into that traditional kind of, sort of model. Yeah. So you thought you could create a, a different environment. Yes. And that's where Muse 
came from. Yes, How exactly. many years ago was that? So that was 13 years ago. Okay. Walk us through what, what Muse okay. is for listeners who are on the other side of the world and are literally hearing this for mm. the first time. Yeah. So again, I realized that I'm in a very privileged situation that I have the ability to and resources to start a school or to, you know, start environmental organizations or dress design contests or whatever it might be. But I realized through the situation with my older kids, and we had found this amazing high school for them to go to that really celebrated them for who they were as individuals. And I watched my older son, who was six feet tall at the time he started high school, go from walking around with rounded shoulders to holding his shoulders back. And he still will tell you, he's 28 years old now, and he will still tell you today, my high school was so chill. (laughs) I mean, they had surf classes, you know what I mean? And our daughter, who had lived under a hoodie for many, many years, all of a sudden her hoodie came off and her purple and blue and green hair came out and she's an amazing artist. And she was celebrated for that. And I realized you know, as I started looking around for schools for, for our little girl, that what they were feeding them, no one was talking about the environment with them. They were all expected to kind of live in this little box. Nobody was teaching any kind of self-efficacy. And I just said to Jim one night, I just said, you know, and it was, actually, it was November of 05. And he was trying to decide whether or not to do this little film called Avatar or continue with his deep sea diving because he had done, from the time of Titanic until then, he had done, I think, four expeditions and he loved it. And I mean, filmmaking is a fraction of what he does. He's an amazing oceanographer. So he's got a lot of passions outside of it. And scientists. And I mean, he's engineer. I mean, he's. He is a renaissance kind of guy. have to save that for another podcast. Yeah. That sounds like hours. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So I just said to him, I said, you know, I can't put our baby in any of these schools. And, you know, maybe, maybe we homeschool her. But she was already very much sort of an introvert. And we just thought it was going to be too isolated. Mm, so you wanted that social aspect. Yeah. So I said, well, why don't I just get a couple of families together because there are, there are a cluster of them at the preschool and we'll just start a little homeschool kind of thing. We were going to do it in this area where you are right now, actually in our guest house, which is now my office. So this is, this is Muse 1.0. Or, it is. Or would have been. It would have been. It would have been. And, you know, again, it was, you know, it turned into learning everything I could about education And with my sister, I called her up and I said, look, I really want to start this school. And she said, no. She had already started one in Wichita, Kansas, an early childhood program. And it was an amazing program. And I kept begging her and begging her. And I I, I finally won out because I'm the persistent older sister. And she started commuting out here. And we founded Muse together. And it's based on the Reggio Emilia we pulled from a lot of different pedagogies, certainly Waldorf and Reggio. And, and then we added in 21st century learning with technology and, and hardcore academics. And we started 13 years ago with 11 kids 
you made that sound really easy, but there must have been a lot of work that went into creating the curriculum and the environment. Yeah. We had no idea what we were getting. And is it like, I mean, you say start a school, but then is there like Californian regulations that you sort of have to fit in as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. But we had an opportunity through this high school. They ended up inheriting a campus right here in Malibu and they could only fill up half of it. So they had this one room. It was like this little one room area with an adjoining kitchen and a, and a yard big enough to, for them to play and also put in a garden. We got that campus about three weeks before we opened. So all of a sudden we had a campus, we had kids, we had a school. And we were building that jet while we were flying Mach 10. And so today we have, we start at two years old and we go all the way through high school. We've got two campuses and have 220 plus kids. And we just made an announcement last week that we are opening Muse Global Schools. So awesome. Yeah. Any plans for Australia? Yes. There we go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a franchise model. So basically we just need franchise partners. So if you know anybody. So if anyone's listening that wants to. That's right. To, to bring out news down under, you know, who to contact. Right. Okay, and so how's it going? Like how, how is it, is it everything that you thought news would be? What, the, what feedback are you getting from families and the kids? And, you know, you've had a few kids no doubt graduate now. And mm-hmm. go on to tell tell us a little bit about that that sort of journey. So we've had two graduating classes so far, and a hundred percent of our students have been able to of our graduating students have been able to get into the college of their choice. So they've gone off to NYU and Berkeley and Hawaii and Pitzer and et cetera, et cetera. But it's been a journey, and we, I mean, talk about. Thank God we have persistence because there were many, many times in May of our first year, I cried to Jim and I said, I I can't do this. It's too hard. (laughs) And he kind of gave me a pep talk and he said, he said, no, you're creating a legacy. You're creating something that doesn't exist out there and just try it for one more year. So we just kept going and kept going and kept going. And after our second year, we outgrew our, our little one room area and we ended up moving up to Topanga. We were there for three years and then we moved to, we were able to buy a campus in Calabasas, which is where we are now. And I've driven past it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if, if I'm a kid and and I'm going to school at Muse, just to sort of visualize it, if you can help us visualize it, if I'm walking into Muse and doing a day of school versus a typical school, how, how's it different? Is it the way the teachers are talking to me? Is it what I'm learning? Is it, is it what I'm doing, whether it's gardening or am I eating different things? Like where, where does it sort of differ from a typical American school? Everything, (laughs) (laughs) pretty much everything. So I actually want to start with school, with food first, because when we opened, I wanted, that was one of the things that I really wanted to do was to have a garden and let the kids know where their food was coming from. And I wanted to feed them the best possible food that we could possibly feed them, which was something that I was doing at our home, which is what 
I thought was the best thing to do. So we had grass-fed beef, free-range chicken, cage-free eggs, all organic dairy, all of those kinds of things. And in January of 14, well, May of 12, uh, Jim and I went plant-based. What sparked that? I watched a movie called Forks Over Knives. And then I took that and I showed it to Jim. And 24 hours later, we blew up our kitchen and we went cold turkey. It's it's incredible, isn't it? Those, yeah. I mean, it's such an amazing documentary still to this day. Oh, it is. Forks, Forks Over Knives. Yeah. Is, um, it's a great, great documentary. Yeah. And I mean, it just goes to show if <laughs> Susie Cameron and James Cameron can watch it and the next day go plant-based, well... Yeah. Just about anyone can. So so you watch that and then the next day, immediate changes to... It was. I mean, our kitchen was completely cleaned out within 24 hours and we actually had goats up at our ranch. And so we were making our own goat yogurt, goat cheese, goat milk. And 48 hours, we shut that production down. We kept the goats for a while for fire abatement and plus they're really cute. <laughs> but it just, it all happened seriously overnight. And... We never looked back. We really never looked back. And I mean, it, we felt the effects immediately. And it was not long after that that Jim started educating me on the environmental piece. I had been in environmental circles for decades. And I had sat on the leadership council of a probably the largest environmental NGO in the United States. They also have offices outside the United States. No one ever said a word about it. They talked a lot about ocean acidification and biodiversity loss and deforestation and dead zones and climate change and melting glaciers, you know, every environmental issue. And there was a moment when I was in one of those meetings after I had been learning all of this and I envisioned this flower with animal agriculture right in the middle and all of the petals were those things like deforestation, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, all of those things. Because you can connect pretty much every environmental issue back to animal agriculture. And we were walking on the beach. I mean, Jim is kind of a doomsday kind of guy based on his films. You know, it's, it's all about, you know, the end of the world and hell and all that stuff. And he does not use the word hope ever. He's got a t-shirt that says, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and we were walking along the beach about two months after we went plant-based. And he said, for the first time in my life, I have hope. And I almost fell into the surf. I just thought, and I turned to him and he said, the more people we can get to go plant-based, the more we can move the needle on climate change. And it was in that moment that I knew as an individual there was something I could do in the world to spread that message. So cut to, you know, a year and a half later and many, many discussions, Muse is an environmental school and we realized we could not call ourselves an environmental school and still have still the grass-fed be, beef. And exactly. And, you know, I also knew too the, you know, the health, the devastation that it creates on health as well. So not only was I at one point, you know, killing, <laughs> poisoning my family, but I was poisoning all these kids at school as well. 
I thought I was doing the right thing because we've all been advertised to our whole lives that you need animal products. You need meat to be, have strong muscles. You need milk to have strong bones. And it's absolutely the antithesis. Not only do we not need it, but it's actually bad for you and horrendous for the environment. So we decided that we were going to take the school plant-based. What was How was that received, I guess, by the <laughs> other families um, in terms of did people think you were forcing your opinion on, on their kids? Oh, it was full-on mutiny, let me tell you. So <laughs> it, it was, absolutely. We took 18 months, though. And we had doctors come in, we had climate scientists, we had athletes, we had authors, we had chefs come in and spend the day with the children. And then at nighttime, they would do a muse talk with, for the all parents. For and, the parents. And so it was a big education process. Huge, huge. And we had literature that we, that we you know, handed out to people. And, and Neil Barnard, who's written, I don't know how many books, probably 15 or so, I've had him on the show, actually. Actually, I haven't published it yet, but yeah, I've recorded he's, the conversation. Yeah, he's amazing. And he's coming out to Australia in a couple of months. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's yeah. a cool guy. Yeah, we just love him. He created a one sheet for us to give to the parents, which is in the book, actually, and it's on the website, about all the health benefits of raising a child plant-based. It didn't matter that we did all this because we still had mutiny. We lost 50% of our families. We quickly regained our enrollment and we've now surpassed it. And people, you know, from all over the United States have moved there. We even had a family move from out of the United States to come to the school because it's plant-based and because it's very focused on the environment and sustainability. So at the time when they were sort of dropping off and you lost 50%, (laughs) you must have felt Okay, we're taking a couple steps back here, but I believe we're more aligned with our values. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we, you know, and I I just thought we're just ahead of our time. And we were. And you were doing what's right. And we were doing what's right. Yeah. We I I couldn't in my right mind continue to feed that to anybody. So the kids now at at the school, if they want food there, it's entirely plant-based. Yep. What about if they bring lunch in from home? No food from the outside. So we have 150 raised beds. They grow, depending on the time of year, they grow anywhere from 60% to 90% of the produce that they eat every day. They learn how to plant it, grow it, harvest it, prepare it, compost it. Wow. Yeah. And how, how old are they when they start learning that? Two. Yeah. Two years That's old. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the middle school, high schoolers have created businesses around the around the extra produce and they actually go on their bicycles. So it's low carbon footprint and they put it in their backpacks and they take it, they sell it to um, various local restaurants as well. So, so we are the first plant-based school in the nation. And I actually think in the world, because no one has raised their hand to say that they did it before us. It's great to be in, in the forefront of doing that because it's, you know, six and a half years, how much everything has really changed and how much plant-based eating and, and the awareness around it for whether it doesn't matter, it's whether it's for health, environment, the animals, your waistline, your sex life, whatever it is, it's a win-win-win situation. Everybody wins. Now, my internal mission statement and my main reason for doing this is for the environment because you can have good health you can have, you know, animals that aren't being slaughtered. You can have, you know, 
a smaller waistline or great sex life. But if we don't do something about the environment, none of that other stuff matters at all. So, you know, I just wake up every day and I think, what else can I do to make the world a better place for all of our children to grow up in? So that's what drives me. That's, that's the inferno that's raging inside me every day. And I want to I want to jump into what is actually happening with the climate and how real it is in a second. But if we just just jumping back to Muse from from a teaching point of view, yeah, and like curriculum and I guess the way they speak to the kids is it is it different as well? So they're obviously eating different food in the school and learning about where their food comes from. But what about the curriculum side of things and how they're taught? Is that different? It absolutely is different. And I don't know if you have time on this trip, but we'd love for you to come and tour the school. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's definitely an experience. So it is a passionate interest-based learning school that focuses heavily on the environment and sustainability. So everything that the kids do, there's a thread of sustainability that goes through it. The campus is completely solar powered. Uh, you can't find a plastic bottle. If you show up with a single use cup, you might have a child come up to you and tell you that that doesn't belong on the campus. I already talked about the, our seed to table program, the gardening and the composting and, and all of that. And one of the ways that the kids learn, they, we have core academics, which are really strong chunks of time where they're learning their core academics. But every single child is asked what their passion or interest is. Not the parents, but the kids starting at two years old all the way through high school. Each child has a passion that they work on, and it can be for one semester or it could be for five years or 10 years. It doesn't matter. If they decide to do it longer, then they just go deeper into that subject every semester. My daughter studied wolves for four years. Then she moved to animation for close to five years. And now she's doing spiders. So it's, it's, you know, a matter of, you know, just what they're interested in. And then we build the academics into that. And what ends up happening, because the kids are so excited about what they're doing, I mean, it's... They're engaged. They're totally engaged, that they are working two, three, and sometimes four grades ahead of the state and national standards. So how would, can you give us an example, I guess, with spiders, how you, how you're intertwining the the study or the curriculum into that topic? Yeah. So I will give you an example of our son, who's now 15 and a major motorcycle rider at this point. When he was nine years old, he decided that his passion was going to be motorcycles. And he walked into the room one day and he said, I'm going to build a motorcycle. <laughs> it's like, great. That's really cool. What are you going to build it out of? Well, wood. <laughs> <laughs> So in the next breath was him saying, but I hate math and I'm not going to read, you know, so he, because he really is more of a builder. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just, you just tell your teacher that that's what you're going to do for your passion. Well, the next thing we know is that in order to learn how to build a motorcycle, you have to read an enormous amount. And the books about building motorcycles are for adults. And the math that is involved in building a motorcycle is, revolves around physics. So here was this little nine-year-old, and we happened to be in New Zealand at the time when he was building it. So each child 
with their passions is hooked up with a mentor. And we find mentors within the parent body. But I mean, it can be anything from astrophysics to fashion design, to motorcycles, to wolves, to oceanography, to space travel, whatever it might be. And we will hook them up. We might call somebody at JPL or somebody at Scripps Institute or whatever it is to to find them a mentor. And we found one in New Zealand for our little boy and he built a motorcycle. And interestingly enough, because we were in New Zealand, it was all metric. So he had to convert everything within his project to, you know, so people in the United States would understand it. So every, you know, kilometers to miles. And so he started learning about that difference. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he learned all of those different things. So, you know, in the end, he was doing very advanced reading and very advanced math, which we brought it to his attention after the fact. And the confidence that he got from that, all of a sudden, he loved to read and he loved doing math. And he loved science. And he saw what he could achieve if he put his mind to something. Exactly. Because it was, it, was, it was applicable in the moment. And his culmination was getting on this motorcycle and starting it up and riding off into the sunset. You know, so it was really cool. And we ended up shipping the whole thing back here. And he had his motorcycle at school that he built himself. So you guys spend a bit of time in New Zealand? We do. Typically, we're there for about three months out of the year. Jim is going to be shooting all of the live action for Avatar 2 and 3 there. So next year we'll... People will, will be asking when's, when are they finally coming out? 2020 is two. 2020, guys. We've heard it here from Susie yeah. Cameron. So. 2020 and then 2021. I, I can't wait to see them. I've read all of the scripts and they're... <gasps> bring tissue. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Climbing back to sustainability mm-hmm. and and the climate and the United Nations have been talking about it, I guess, in the last week or two. There's been more headlines and Donald Trump comes out and says a few things, likes, likes to say it's all a hoax. How, how Glad re- you can't see me rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> how, how real is climate change and how big is our current food system impacting it neg- negatively and what do you think we should be doing from from all the way up at a policy level all the way down to an individual level in order to help save the planet and set up a better future? We can all laugh and smile and talk about things, but it's a very sobering moment to realize what is happening with our environment and why I personally feel a huge urgency, and I know there are a lot of other people that do as well, There's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that animal agriculture contributes more to greenhouse gases and climate change than all transportation combined. Every car, every airplane, every bus, everything. And just knowing that statistic alone, yeah, you can drive an electric car or get a hybrid if you can afford it but you're going to make more of a difference by looking at what's on your plate than even paying attention to that. It's it's best to do everything you possibly can from changing your light bulbs to recycling to if you can get solar, if you can, you know, drive drive a Tesla. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, let's get real. How many people can actually do that? It's a pretty small percentage. 
what's happening though is so we're having this big effect and there's more emissions from animal agriculture than than transport yes but if we look at the planet and its health what is actually happening that is concerning you and others in this space Every environmental issue, and I've already I talked about them with the flower diagram. So all of those things would be taken care of on a very, very large percentage. And I, I'm just going off the cuff here, but I would say 90% of those issues would be taken care of if we took animal agriculture off the plate. Because even regular agriculture, growing all the corn and soy, about 80% of that, 70 to 80% of the corn and soy that's grown in the world is fed to the animals. So it's a really inefficient process. It is. It? it is. And so all of the, the nitrogens and everything, the fertilizers that are put onto those crops are going into the waterways and going down into the oceans and they're creating dead zones. There are 450 plus dead zones in the world. And it goes directly back to animal agriculture. You cannot deny that our weather patterns have changed. You know, right before you came in, we were having our annual fire meeting. And our annual fire meeting, it keeps moving closer and closer to, you know, it, it, we used to do it in November. And now we're doing it early October and realize because we've been on you know, fire lockdown for the last two days because of the Santa Ana winds. But really we should be starting, we should have our meeting and we made the announcement today that we should have it in August. The hurricanes that are happening, they're unprecedented. And, you know, being in Australia, what's happened, you know, with the coral reefs and it's- It's terrible. It is. It's everywhere. I mean, last year in, we have a tiny little place in Colorado there was no snow. It's never been like that in my lifetime. You know, so you can't deny that something isn't happening. Everywhere you go in the world, people are talking about, yeah, the weather's really weird. It's very unusual this time of year. You know, whether it's typhoons or hurricanes or or even really beautiful weather. They're like, I mean, I we were in we were in London, I want to say four years ago. And Every, it was gorgeous, but it was during a time of year that it shouldn't have been gorgeous. So everybody was talking about this beautiful, sunny weather when it should have been overcast and gray and cold, you know? So there, it's, it's not about, it's, it's about client, the climate is changing, you know? So, so for instance, the bread belt of America, you know, down in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, places like that. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be that the bread belt is going to continue moving up. It's going to be in Canada, which is why we have farms in Canada. <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it's everywhere. And I used to give speeches about the environment all the time. And people would always ask me what they could do. And I would give that speech of change your light bulbs, recycle. You know, if you can afford solar, an electric car, whatever it is do that. And I used to watch, and I still do, all of the documentaries about the environment and they're devastating and they're depressing and you get paralyzed because you think as one individual that you can't make a difference. And, you know, I've, I 
kind of tapped into it before, but you know, again, I'm in this unusual position where I can, you know, start an environmental school and do dress design contests and, and environmental organizations and all of those things. But I used to wake up every morning and realize, you know, I'm not making that much of a difference. I'm really not. I'd like to pat myself on the back and think I am, but I'm not. It's just, it's not even probably scratching the surface. What do you what do you think just quickly about people at, you know in high positions or even Donald Trump who say that they think the world will just naturally adapt are they is this sort of a bit of a head in the sand defeatist mentality or you know is that is that the sort of the problem we're in where too many people just have that defeatist mentality here and it is what it is I think it's ignorance because humans won't adapt as a whole a lot of people will die. You know, I don't call that adaptation. <laughs> I call so that- The world's starting again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Because we've ruined it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that's where, where there is hope, using the word that my husband does use now, is in plant-based eating. Because, you know, up, up, until, that, up until that moment of- realizing that I wasn't making a difference. And I did wake up with a pit in my stomach every morning and feeling depressed about the whole thing. But when I realized that as an individual, that I, every time I eat, every time I decide to make a plate of food, I can personally make a difference. I mean, just one person for having one plant-based meal a day, changing one plant-based meal a day from a meat and dairy meal, for a year, we'll save close to 200,000 gallons of water and the equivalent, save the equivalent of carbon from driving to from Los Angeles to New York. It's a long way. A long way. It's 3,000 3, miles. Yeah. So realizing that, you know, even if people, the more people that will just try eating, just changing one meal a day, to a plant-based meal will start to make a huge difference. And, you know, the people that don't believe in climate change and, you know, I'm not, you know, full transparency, half of my family in Oklahoma doesn't believe in climate change. However, they realize the benefits, the health benefits of eating plant-based. So one of my brothers, for instance, I just talked to him recently and we were talking, he was talking about the book and they're all arriving actually tonight because there's a big book launch party tomorrow. He said to me, well, I just want you to know, I just want you to know that I'm doing one meal a day and it's really great. And I was like, well, that's great, Dave. Yeah, I feel so much better after I eat that way. Maybe I'm going to start trying too. So I was like, that's great, Dave. So again, it's one of those things where even if people- Attached to one pillar exactly. that inadvertently help the other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whether it's, you know, I mean, you're clearly in amazing shape, super duper buff, and you're completely plant-based, you know, so doing it for, whether it's for health reasons or for fitness or for sex life or for your waistline, I don't care because the environment's going to win. Because the more that people are eating plant-based, the more demand, the more the demand is lessened. And the more that the supply will actually go down. 
there was a statistic last week where the plant-based food industry will be close to a $8 billion industry within like a year. And the beef industry is starting to invest in all of these plant-based meats. Mm. So the Beyond Burger. Spicy Foods jumped into that one. Exactly, exactly. They see that trend. Yeah, and the dairy industry is realizing it. Dairy consumption has gone way down and they're starting to invest in different plant-based milk companies, milk and dairy, Mm. milk and cheese There's a big one here, uh, Elmhurst. I'm not sure if you've read about them, but they're a big American dairy company. Mm-hmm. They shut down all of their dairy production. Yeah. Now they only do macadamia, hazelnut, almond milks. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, we did that at the farm in New Zealand. It was a dairy farm and it was one of the most successful. Actually, we had two dairies on our farm, but we hadn't gone plant-based yet. And one of the dairies was actually the most successful dairy farm in the Wairapa and we closed it down. <laughs> And now we have a full-blown organic veggie operation and we're doing cropping and we've got a big food forest and, and things like that. So we've completely gone, gone down that route as well. And with our investments, we, I mentioned it earlier that we bought farms in, up in Canada. So we built a pulse processing plant. It's called Verdient up there. Um, so we're creating plant proteins out of peas and lentils and fava beans and working with the food center up there to create food products. And the, the first ones that we're rolling out are actually OMD food products that'll come out in early 19. Amazing. Will that be in, yeah. in, the, in the U.S. market as well? It's going to start in Canada and move to the U.S. And we've already got, you know, interest for, from Australia, from China, from Japan, from places in Europe. To, to bring the products there. So, Amazing. Yep. Now, I know that the listeners, there might be a few listeners that are thinking, if we move from animal agriculture and we all start just eating plants, what does this food system look like? And can, can we farm without blood and bone, manure, these types of fertilizers? How does that work? So we do that on the farm actually. And it's one of the, one of the things that we wanted to do was to create a model around green compost and growing foods without animal input, which we are doing and we're doing it successfully. The biggest situation is phosphorus. Phosphorus is a finite resource and we will hit peak phosphorus probably in 50 years. So that is something that we will have to look at, whether it's harvesting out of the oceans. You know, I, I always like to say, what if, we're, what if we compost our bones? You know, that's, that's a whole nother bag of worms, as it were. But, you know, our bones and teeth are full of phosphorus. So why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we recycle, you know, animal bones, all of those things? So there are... Um, many layers to it, but I know that, for instance, Wendy's, they grow all of their lettuces without any any animal products because of the incidence of salmonella or E. coli, which is very possible to, you know, for vegetables. When you hear that vegetables are contaminated with that, it's because they have animal products put on them. There you go. Yeah. 
So, so it's very possible for families at home to do all of their fruits, vegetables, plants in their backyard or on their farm without any animal input at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, composting is the best way to, to do that. I should probably tell you the story about OMD. Yes, let's get into the book. It's and about where time. They, and where that came from. So we were talking about Muse and we went plant-based and we had major pushback, which I already told you about. And our head of school got very, very, very frustrated one day and said, people, you can give them eggs and bacon in the morning and you can give them a burger at night. It's one meal a day. It's OMD. And that's where OMD was born. So when you go to Muse, there's a big sign that says home of OMD. And these Muse Global Schools that I was talking about earlier too, so all of those schools will be OMD schools because they'll all be plant-based and have all of the same five pillars and philosophies as well. So we self-published this tiny little cookbook. In fact, I've got one right over there that I'll give you when you go if you want. Amazing. And I looked at, you know, OMD just stuck. Everybody all of a sudden was talking about OMD and that it's, you know, it's such an easy way into it. After Jim and I went plant-based and, and I don't know if you experienced this, but we just were born again. We just thought everybody had to do it and they had to do it like we did it. They needed to blow up their kitchen and just go cold turkey and do it now or yesterday because they were going to feel so much better and have so much yeah. energy and, you know. Yeah, you get so passionate. You want other people to feel how how good you feel to, to thrive. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And we sent books out. I mean, I know that Forks Over Knives definitely had a spike in their sales and China study and all of the books because we bought hundreds, if not thousands of copies, and we shipped them out to all What's of incredible us. is that you guys are just like so, so successful in your own right. You don't need to be doing this. Like you could easily just be relaxing on the beach or in relaxing and using all your time in the best results in the world, but you're, you decided to dedicate yeah, a fairly large percentage of your life to bettering the planets. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, yeah, we could be taking selfies of our toes yeah. <laughs> in restaurants, but we love it. And, and we're quadruple A type personalities. So, <laughs> but we, you know, we, we want to make a difference. So that's, that's just how we roll. And we, we spend our time doing that. So I, I saw this little book that we self-published and I thought, you know what? And it's my, my brother-in-law came up with OMD. So I have to give him full credit. This is Jeff King, who's married to my sister who helped me start the school. It, it is a bit of a family affair. And I took that and wrote a story. It's, it's, it not only has all of the health benefits behind it, and it has, you know, it's heavily researched with all of the, we've got a brain trust of doctors that we worked with. And then there's a whole section in there on the environment. So we worked with climate scientists to get all of the science behind that from Chatham House to Loma Linda University, where they studied all the Seventh-day Adventists. And then it's a guidebook. So it's really about holding your hand and walking you through it. It's got recipes, it's got shopping lists. It's got meal plans. It's got even how to turn your pantry into a vegan pantry. So it's got all of those things in it. And what we realized being on your soapbox and trying to tell everybody to do it cold turkey really turns people off. 
they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to know about it. They cross their arms, you know, they squint their eyes. They get really, you know, stroppy about the whole thing. But you talk to them about OMD and you can just see their shoulders relaxing. It's like, yeah, so you could just, you can keep your burger and your eggs if you want to. And it's just one meal a day. You can, you can put soy milk on your cereal instead of cow's milk, or you could have a bean and veggie burrito instead of a beef burrito. You could have a tomato sauce on your pasta instead of meat sauce. And all of a sudden they, they're sort of like, oh, oh, well that I could do that. That sounds really reasonable. That sounds easy. And sure enough, they do it. And then I don't know how many times I've heard back from these people where they, you know, they're like, you know, yeah, I didn't have, I did it for breakfast and I didn't have that morning, mid-morning dip or I did it after lunch and I just felt so energetic or I did it for dinner and I slept better and I didn't have acid reflux and, you know, all of these things. And the next thing you know, I'm getting, you know, emails or phone calls and they've, they've now coined it to the number two MD. So they're doing two meals a day and then they tell a friend and then they tell another friend. And I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And then you go around the world and you realize how much it's trending, you know, not just here, but everywhere. It's great because it's exactly what my message is as well. It aligns with just stepping it out. You don't, it's, it doesn't need to be an extreme change. Yeah. And, you know, like you're saying, the most people, once they start giving it a go and get confident with it, exactly. they go from one to two and, and then they get super passionate and excited like you were explaining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they, they pass pass that knowledge on to the next person. Yeah, yeah. So the book actually will take you through one meal a day or two meals so a day. Cool. It will also teach you how to blow up your kitchen <laughs> for those people who want to do that. I've got a few people in my mind that I need to send a copy to. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so going going forward, I watched a documentary recently, Eating You Alive. Okay. That you, you and James were in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that in when I say that I saw the at the one of the premieres in New York. I think it was in like March or April. Mm-hmm. A re- really cool documentary. But I understand that James has the Game Changers coming out. So Jim and I both executive you produced. Both, sorry, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't yeah, given you no, enough credit okay. there. So you've co it's the first. It's actually the, it. yeah, it's the first time that we've had a, a co-producing. Credit. What's that been like? So the the film is amazing. We're in negotiations on distribution right now. But I think the thing that excites me the most is that it really targets men because guys think, although they just need to take one look at you. Well, my good buddy, uh, Nimai Delgado is in that. So Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So most guys think that they, the only way to be manly is to eat meat, you know, real men eat meat. And it's completely the antithesis. I mean, from everything, from whether you're, you want fitness bodybuilding, stamina, sex drive, all of those things. And and we talk about all of those things in the film. So I'm really excited about it because I think it's really going to hit home for a lot of guys. And that's that's a huge demographic that they think that if they eat plant-based that they're going to be wimps. And it's, it's far from the truth. It is so far from the truth. Yeah. Now, 
I'm going to have all the links on the show notes so that um, people can see information about the book and yourself and your website. Mm-hmm. Is the book's available now to buy or is it coming out soon? It's on pre-order. Pre-order. So pre-orders are really, really, really important. And I don't know when this is airing, um, but, you know. November-ish. So then we'll be into sales. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. So guys, we'll have the links there so you can just click direct over, directly over and um, purchase a copy. And if if anyone wants to get in contact with you directly, is there a way that they can they can do that on social media or email or anything? Yeah, so we've got a huge social media platform. We've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have the OMD website, which has you know info at OMD, and there's also my personal website, which is SusieAmosCameron.com, and a lot of people actually reach out to me. Over that, it's info at SusieAmosCameron.com. But yeah, the social media is is blasting away. So we've got OMD and then I've got my own personal social media too, which is Susie Amos Cameron, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and and Twitter as well. Perfect. So, yeah. Also, I understand that there is an opportunity for corporates, for companies to get involved with OMD. How does that work? Yeah, so this is really exciting and we're a couple of months out from this, but we've created a corporate pitch deck for corporations to become OMD corps. So we're talking to corporations, we're talking to airlines, we're talking to hotels, restaurants, schools, the studios, and a side note on that. So Jim's set of Avatar is the first plant-based catered set. I was going to ask you about this. I read that. So yes. how, how has that gone down with the cast? Like Sam Worthington and, and these guys, were, were people like, where's the meat? Sam's vegan. Oh, there we go. Sam and we're going to get him on the show. <laughs> Sam and his wife are plant-based because of us. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So in the beginning, when, when Jim announced it, I think about maybe 10 to 20 people had lunch. And word started spreading and he actually presented it to them as OMD. He said, look, you know, you guys can eat whatever you want for breakfast and dinner. This is one meal a day for the planet. It's what, you know, Susie does at Muse and that's what her book is about. And, you know, that will help knock us over to probably the greenest set in the world. It's all solar powered. You can't find plastic bottles. And now it's a, it's plant based catered. That's so awesome. Yeah. How many people are on the on the so set? now they're serving um, about 150 meals a day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the feedback's been good. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And people actually a lot of people have decided to go full force. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really starting cool. from Avatar up. So so back to the corporate side of things and people getting involved. Yeah. So one of the things that and I'm just super excited about this because what we realized was your carbon footprint is cut down so much. So we are creating a carbon credit program for corporations and companies to, to be able to apply that when they become OMD companies, because for them to, to be offering plant-based foods to their employees, you know, not only will they get carbon credits for that, but they'll also have, you know, higher production value and better attendance and lower healthcare costs and, 
less illness. So across the boards, again, it's one of those win-win-win situations. And you will actually, the, the carbon credits are more valuable by offering plant-based foods than planting trees or crops. Now, we want everybody to keep planting trees and crops, but this just pushes everything over the edge. So we're really excited about it. And our, our corporate deck should be ready probably in a couple of months. But we've had some very, very well-known household name corporations already commit to it before they even have seen the deck, which is really exciting. I'm, and I'm, I'm so excited yeah. to see how that rolls out. Yeah. So that'll be fun to announce in a couple of months. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Mm. I love what you're doing, everything from, from Muse to this new book. And I'm really excited to see how much of an effect this book has once it gets out there. It's really cool sitting here at your place, um, Susie and James Cameron's place. It's, it's kind of surreal. So thank you very much for having me here, reaching out to me when one of your managers reached out. I was super, super humbled to to have this opportunity to share your story. I think it's so, so clear how much passion you have for making this world, this planet better and I just want to thank you for everything you're doing and keep doing it. You're doing amazing things. Thank you so much. That was really great to meet you. Pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Wow, what an episode. Really can't believe how genuine Susie is and how hard she is working to make this world better for all of us and future generations. After the podcast, we spoke about her school and I mentioned I had visited the Green School in Bali and was very keen to set something up in Australia. So who knows, perhaps there will be a new school coming to Australia soon. What a dream that would be for me to be able to help create. That's it for this one, folks. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.